What's going on, guys? My name is Moore Milo. I'm Ross Santorelli. This is the 52 Podcast. 52 weeks, 52 books, making every single week count. Thanks for joining us again on the podcast. This is episode 25. What we do here every week is we read a book, we go over some news, bring you guys all the key points for the week on uh, you know leadership, business acumen, etc., etc. If you want to get better at business, you want to be a better leader, come join us every week and we talk about all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, this week... We have a great book by Lawrence Ingracia. Mm -hmm. It's a brand new book. This thing came out, what, 15 days January ago? January 28th Literally or something? Literally just came month. out. Newest book we've read by far. And it's called uh, Billion Dollar Brand Club. Uh, it's all about different brands that have been able to create massive, massive widespread um, success mm -hmm. in America and over all over the world um, through technology. So super excited to get into that. Before we go into that, we're gonna go into our news piece for the week, which we are talking about the Iowa caucus. Mm -hmm. So Ross, can you lead us in? So one of the things that happened last week was the Iowa caucus and what they were doing to report a lot of the results from about 1,500, 1,700 precincts um, was they were testing out a new app to try to be able to streamline the process and get this data in quicker because every year, the, or every time they have this every you know four years or so, the issue is that the results come back slow, they come back disjointed, it's hard to calculate, and it's a process that you know many are deeming should you know almost be be gotten rid of because of how slow and ineffective it can really be. Well, let's be real, our, in, our entire political system when it comes to how we vote for anyone is rather ineffective. But yeah. Let's but this is probably the least effective at a <laughs> sure. lot of levels. So the problem was they rolled out a new app that took about two months to make. So that's a pretty quick rollout if you're in that industry. Um, two months to roll it out. The day it came out or the day it was had to be used, I mean, there were crashes, a lot of bugs because it had not been tested on a scale this big. So you had a lot of issues with results, you know, not transmitting, getting lost, getting erased. Um, and these are big issues because you can't really do another vote for things like this. This is humans walking around almost like a gymnasium and trying to, you know, forget the final numbers of these things. Sure, interacting. So you had an issue of not only the app being buggy, then you also have user error and you have, you know, someone who's sitting behind a computer, a real tech savvy guy that's thinking, oh, this is how we use it. You know, maybe not understanding that his main demographic is someone you know, 50, 60 years plus in the middle of Iowa in, in a high school gym calculating votes. You know, they're going to have a harder time than some 15, 16 year old that this guy just did an app for, you know, last month. So you got a lot of things that kind of compounded together. But with that, it took a lot of the momentum away from a lot of the Democrats and who was their winner because now no one's really 100% sure. There were stats that were coming back that there were more people in the final count versus the first count, which is impossible. You can't let more people in after the first round. So a lot of things that didn't make sense, and that really kind of threw off a lot of people that were spending a lot of money to campaign in that state. So yeah, I mean, listen. At the end of the day, technology is going to take over in every facet of the of our everyday lives, including, you know, our political system. Mm -hmm. So, in my opinion, are they making the right move to move into into a more technological world, a more tech savvy solution? Yes. Is there going to be a learning curve for the 50, the 60 year old, you know, boomer that's usually the person voting in a, in a situation like this? A hundred percent. I personally think that the biggest issue that they had was the fact that they didn't take the time to actually build a, a product that was going to be mm -hmm. successful. Like when you have this much on the line, 
where is the checks and balances? Where's the research and development? You know, why are we taking shortcuts when it comes to our political system when we spend so much money in, you know, in uh, in tax dollars on other things? Mm-hmm. You know, if this is something that's important to to our entire country, then it should be handled in an p- appropriate way. So, um, do I believe that the concept is right? A hundred percent. Uh, does it suck that they totally screwed everything up, that there were uh, inconsistencies in over 77 precincts because of this uh, particular piece of software? Absolutely. But, you know, listen, there's going to be a learning curve no matter what. Yeah, the thing is, it, to me, it sets us back a little bit because I would love to be able to vote from my phone. Absolutely. I think, I think, like I said, our biggest problem is we have the lowest voter turnout of any country when it comes to voting. And I think a lot of that is just the inaccessibility. You have to, a lot of people have to leave their job or take the, the day off um, to get down to a voting uh, area where you have to stand for hours, vote, do all this, and leave. If you could, you know, we have so many other ways of verifying things that are not even nearly as important. You have to upload a social security number or, you know, your uh, driver's license, things like that. We can have systems in place where if you can just vote, I think your voter turnout would be incredibly high, and then you're going to get the, the best candidate for it. So I just worry that something like this could either hinder the fact that we you know we want to go that route, or it could also do the opposite. It could make us think that we need to, like you said, test a lot more before we roll out one of these so that maybe we can have a better quality app that we use for the actual election, if possible. Agreed, and I totally see that dichotomy of wh- which direction it could be pushed. You're 100% right. It could be pushed in the direction of, you know, let's fix it and make sure that we do have a tech solution that's going to work well for the general public, or it could be a hindrance to say, okay, let's go back to the, the way we used to do it. It worked that way. Let's not change it up, mm-hmm. um, which would really be depressing, honestly, to see something like that happen within our own country, with within the United States of America, like the place where innovation is ta- it has has captivated millions for years and years and years. So uh, I am looking forward to seeing more technology solutions for voting, so that we can create a better system around voting and have a better vote voter turnout. You know, mm-hmm. like it's crazy to think that the majority of our country doesn't want to be part of you know the selection process for uh, you know our political figures. And listen, I am. Um, number one culprit. I haven't voted in my t- two past terms for my own reasons. But if I had a tech solution that would offer me the ability to vote in an easier way, I totally think that I'd be more more um, ready and willing to take the time to do so. Mm-hmm. So I really would look forward to, I, I, I am looking forward to a better technology solution for uh, the political system that we currently have. And would love to hear what you guys think. So uh, let us know what you guys think about the Iowa caucus situation with uh, how technology affected that particular circumstance. Let us know what you guys think the future looks like for for voting and for politics when it comes to technology solutions for the general public to be involved. And let us know, you know, if you're voting, if you have voted. We'd love to know if you guys are taking part. Obviously, you don't have to put your political party or who you're voting for, but we'd love to know that you guys are involved in the community. Uh, with that being said, I think, uh, should we move into the book? Yeah, let's Okay, it. let's move into the book. So this week, like we said, we read a book by Lawrence Ingracia. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. I very well could be butchering the crap out of it, but, you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. I don't know him. He's not sitting here next to me, and maybe one day he will be, so we'll find out. Uh, this book is called Billion Dollar Brand Club, and I think right off the bat, I'm going to go into, like, my opinion of the book. 
We'll talk about like. Do you want to go to opinion, or do you want to go? I, like, I think you should add first. in like so this really went into um, like the origin stories of like Dollar Shave Club, Warby Parker, um, and a lot of these other companies that went direct to consumer. That went up against you know Gillette. Um, they talk about Casper as well. So getting in there and understanding you know how they the, these companies were able to go directly to their consumer and really go against these huge conglomerates that you know had a, a stranglehold on these industries for a long time. One hundred percent. So I think it's important to give them that little idea of understanding when we say billion dollar brand club as the title is that actually what brands these are are a lot of the newer ones um, that you're seeing pop up and now you get to understand a little bit of the origin stories there absolutely and most for the most part i would say the the one big thing that we see that's connected between all of them is technology. Mm -hmm. In one way or another, they're taking an old industry that has been set in stone in their ways, like the dental care industry or like the uh, mattress industry or, you know, Gillette, you know, these big, or, or mm -hmm. Gillette or, or Schick, you know, taking on a massive, massive, like you said, conglomerates that have owned the market for uh, the past century. Mm -hmm. um, and what they've done to disrupt these uh, particular ways of doing business or, or this retail model that has worked for the last century, these companies are taking the initiative and creating solutions to disrupt those industries so that the little guy can play and create a big company too. Um, so, should we go straight yeah. into it? Tell, tell, tell me what you like. Okay. Tell me what you like. You so, what it. I loved about this book was number one, super flowy, super easy to read. Um, just a Great listen overall. The The speaker was wonderful. I actually liked his voice. I mm -hmm. thought it was really great. And the stories were really well put together. Um, so basically this book goes chapter by chapter with different companies that uh, were able to create this technological revolution within their industry and explains the journey from the beginning. Um, I actually, funny enough, happened to meet... Uh, Mark Levine, when I was working at Porsche years and years ago, I didn't know much about the guy, and I shook his hand. He had told me the story of Dollar Shave Club and what they were doing before they had launched the business. And to hear the story and the way it's told within this book was really incredible. I mean, it was just such a revolution for how people market different brands. So, for example, if you guys are not familiar with Dollar Shave Club, which most, pe most people are, but for those that aren't, uh, what Dollar Shave Club does is they give you a subscription service that delivers razors and uh, shaving goods and man's grooming products direct to your door. I believe they're also getting into female uh, shaving mm -hmm. products as well. But the way that they started was... Um, their original founder went to Mark Levine, who happened to have a palette of razor blades from Korea, and you know he's like Matt Dubin, right? Matt Dubin's yeah. the name. So he went to Matt Dubin and asked him how I can sell this stuff online. He was the tech guy. He had had a couple startups in the past, and uh, he asked him how how do I sell all these products? And Matt created a marketing campaign that went massively viral and a subscription service that allowed for lower income uh, families to have access to brand new clean razors that would get you know, switched out every, I believe it was week they have their, week their system is? Uh, Dollar Shave Club currently does every month. Every month now. Okay, yeah. so, but they send a subscription with four blades, I believe. Yeah. So you have One a new week. blade every week. Mm -hmm. um, whereas there was a lot of people, you know, using disposable razors or, you know, less, ex less expensive goods uh, that are not like the Gillette products that we pay $25 for a set of razor blades for. So he really took on a opportunity to get into the average income household and create a really massive benefit for them. Um, and I think that that's something that's really, truly different. You know, it's not 
uh, uh, go to the retail store, go pick out the Gillette product off the shelf, you know, and, and go through the hassle of, of asking for, you know, someone to come and let the blades go from the little safety pin that they have. Cause as you guys know, mm -hmm. when you go, when you go buy shaving products, everything is locked on there. So nobody steals it cause they're easy things to pocket. Um, so just the lack of, um, of, of difficulty to get the product that you need and to create the experience that you want for a very minimal price, Dollar Shave Club. I mean, we're literally at the, at the beginning, their, mm -hmm. their subscriptions were a dollar a month, I believe, right? Like crazy stuff. So you did, they, so they did a great job where, like, so I subscribed to Dollar Shave Club for a while. Um, I actually stopped because I have too many blades now, which is, <laughs> which is something that I didn't have before. Because like I said, going in and buying razors for like $45 is Expensive. very disheartening. It really is. Like that is, that is a big chunk of change for such a small little item. And so it got to the point where, you know, I signed up for them because they, they're like $10, I think, like for the whole thing. Um, for the package, Each, each for blade the box, is like a right? dollar technically. Got it. Um, and then they have different levels, like the, the, the basic level. They have a nicer, like the top level is like their executive model, which the razor handle feels similar to like a, a Gillette, you know, a nicer, more sturdy versus like a flimsier one. Um, but they did a great job because, like I said, I switched to them because I got to the point where I was like, crap, like, I don't want to go spend $45 this month. I'd rather spread out my money and just get a few more blades. And that was my logic. And I liked it. I ended up, like I said, I ended up stopping because I don't go through blades as much. Um, so I have a, a built that, like a bunch of them stacked up. But the quality is pretty good. But for me, this book was more about understanding how, like you said, how they came about. So it's very interesting because, like I said, we've had our own startups and understanding, you know, we're always looking for how they marketed, where they started, things like that. And like he said, there was someone who needed um, a, a bunch of razor blades moved, and he thought, you know, I could probably make something work with this. And they started selling them cheaply and then switched into a subscription to keep anything, that you, any consumable that you can switch into a subscription is really the key because people have to keep coming back. So selling a consumable online is really the best thing you can do because something that it will die out, you need to keep coming back for it. So he got to a point where they were able to do it. Like I said, their big key was he spent a lot of time um, I think it was about four thousand dollars as well, building out a, a marketing video. Well, that video um, and, cool and that thing, video that's went incredible. viral, and that's something that I think any founder would would kill for because if you can get that kind of that kind of shares, which we learned before, shares are more than likes and views. Like if you get shares, you're really pushing your product out. So for them to be able to get that kind of viral growth, it really set them up into a whole plane where now they're selling, and then it was interesting to see. All right, now that we're selling, what do people like and what they don't like? People didn't like the initial quality of the razor blades. Well, you could expect that if these are some blades that, even though they're new, are sitting in a warehouse. So then going from that and thinking, all right, let's try to find a way to get new blades, looking at new suppliers. How can we get it over? How can we handle the shipping? A lot of the logistics. So really an incredible book because it does this for not only Dollar Shave Club, but Casper, um, Warby Parker, and a lot of these other ones, which we're going to be covering in a moment. But the, the disruption that they were able to have in the industry is in, amazing to see. And it's incredible because I think that he, the, the author of this book really goes into every aspect of this type of business, this delivery model. He literally goes into the robots in the warehouse mm -hmm. and how they're, they're creating better and more efficient robots that are, you know, tripling, quadrupling, 10xing uh, the ability of an average employee within a business. So it's a really, really great book for 
any industry um, and, and all industries more correctly that have to do with you know delivering a good or service to a customer. Yeah, I think and like I said, to jump to the next company, there was Warby Parker, which um, well I, he goes over a lot of companies. a few, but I didn't. Warby Parker was one of the big ones, and they started while they were still in college. They're and they the were, original, I believe. Yeah, they right? were they were disrupting um, you know the eyeglass uh, industry, is the glasses, um, and getting those cheaper things like that. But one thing that I took away from this, and I'm curious to get your um, thought on this more. They had an issue with people needing to try on the glasses, right? And so they went and they built out that whole function of virtual try-ons and all that that didn't really work. And then they ended up scrapping it for, we'll just send you five pairs because exactly. we found out how to cut the shipping. But it's funny because thinking of that, that is something that we probably would have done in the beginning as well. We would have been like, let's go but the big virtual thing, they can try them all on. It's going to be incredible. People are going to love it. Well, and then realizing that things... This, I think we would have built that virtual setup before Pedal. If we would have gone into a, like a Warby Parker setup yeah. or, or created a business like but that, what I'm saying I think is we would have gone that direction before Pedal. Right. But now after now Pedal, we know with not what to. we know, I think that we would totally But that's what I'm saying. I think seeing that move, I saw that move. Because when they were saying what they were going to do, I was thinking like, oh... Like, they're probably going to try to do some, like, and then next thing you know, he's talking about a virtual try-on thing. And then they talk about how that's, that pretty much didn't work. So what they did is they found out how to cut the, the weight of the shipment of the glasses and all that, different foams, different uh, boxes, things like that. Because if you get it below a certain weight, it's much cheaper to ship. So they ended up doing that where they could offer to ship five of them to you and you could ship um, the ones back that you didn't like. But that gave you a way to try it on that for them ended up being cheaper and easier to do than for that. But also, they were ahead of the time. The cameras really weren't set up for like that true depth like we have now where you can kind of make a 3D model. But Even interesting though, to see early tech ideas. I still believe that the brick-and-mortar idea of sending you a, con like a, a piece of something that mm -hmm. you can actually try on and have something in your hands and put on your face like that is I, I, I personally I think that's that's what sold me about Warby Parker in general and why I'm even I'm actually considering buying a pair of glasses through them right now because of that concept mm -hmm. that they can send me all these different glasses to try on I mean I personally I wear eyeglasses and I'm, I'm sure thousands of you that are watching are wearing eyeglasses too you don't want to buy a pair unless you put them on your face mm -hmm. it's that simple like I've, I've, I've held back from buying a pair of glasses online because I, I can't try them on. Mm -hmm. So that one obstacle for any glasses wearer, if you can try them on in the mirror and look at them and feel them and see how they feel on your face, you're sold. Especially if the price is affordable and the process was easy. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think, I personally think that um, the virtual reality thing, we would have tried to go that direction because, you know, in, in that original phase of being mm -hmm. a founder in the tech community, like everything needs to be technology. Yep. We can't do anything brick and mortar. Forget that, right? Like, you know, we can't go old school. I think that today, looking at that particular situation, the old school method is 10 times better. Yeah, and I think one thing that has been a common theme through all of this has been customer service. And this is something oh, that uh, Amazon is really known for is customer service. Like if you have an, is an issue with Amazon, whatever, here's your money back, we'll go. Think about a billion dollar company. They don't care about your $50, but they want you to be happy and tell one, two, three other people that you liked it. 
But Warby Parker had one where the, they weren't going to be able to get the glasses to somebody by a certain time. They oh, had an it's issue. a great! It's she had a wedding. Yeah, and, and they ended the, up yeah. uh, they ended up going to the warehouse, picking it up, and and driving it over or taking so a bike over. It was it was literally a situation where one of the employees was communicating with this lady, and she had ordered a pair of glasses for a wedding that she was going to for the weekend, and there was a holdup in the manufacturing, which. Um, got the glasses to the uh, warehouse where they were the distribution center mm -hmm. in her area and that last mile is what they call it right that last mile wasn't going to get fulfilled in the time that she needed to have the glasses for the wedding so the customer service representative who i i think it was the founder I think one was, of the founders I think it was one of the founders one of the founders or whoever this was that was on the other end of the phone at Warby Parker literally went to the distribution center picked up that piece of uh, of of product that this customer was ordering and drove it to her apartment and literally hand delivered it and that's massive i mean it speaks volumes to to any company and what they're trying to achieve and the fact that they realize that their customers are their number one asset yeah, they did, they did a phenomenal job in that. The other thing I took away from the Warby Parker story is something that we've done in the past, but we don't do as much as we should, and we should do it more on this one as well, is so remember they had the example of when they first started, people wanted to come and try stuff on. Sure. So they invited five people to their apartment yeah, yeah, to, to come and try stuff on, but they said one of the big things people liked was actually see them working at the same time, see the behind the scenes. Right. So we did a lot with that with Pedal. We would show a lot of the behind the scenes, things like that. And what we're up to. Um, we've done a little bit of that on the podcast in the beginning. We'll try to do a little bit more. Um, Moore's got a good game plan to have us live stream um, the podcast as we film them as well. Um, so you'll be able to see those in the weeks coming up. Let's see all our bloopers. Excuse our bad language. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that was that's a big takeaway for any founder as well. Is like I said, they're trying to create that that human emotion, that one on one connection with their customer. And one of the greatest ways to do it is to look vulnerable and to show them you don't have to be completely polished well, all the time. To be vulnerable, right? To yeah. be vulnerable and allow someone to see the back end. It's and not even look everything. vulnerable, right? It's just truly being open yeah. and allowing others to see. And you know, I think that you you hit a really massive thing about connection right like when you look at technology and me you know interacting with an iPad or with an iPhone you know there's no connection there and the only connection that you have is to whatever's on your screen so you know if you don't have a connection to the company a connection to the brand a brand a feeling an emotion surrounding the interaction or the transaction you know, you're not going to be able to create mm -hmm. the massive widespread appeal that you want to create with a new startup. And actually, this is per a perfect lead into Glossier. Yeah. So Glossier is another company, a cosmetics company, mm -hmm. that um, they specialized in creating connection, creating a relationship with their consumer. Um, and what they did is they basically had like an aesthetic room within every every one of their facilities. Instead of creating, you know, more space for more products that they're going to sell, they actually took out a piece of their showroom and turned it into a, a aesthetically appealing room for people to take pictures in mm -hmm. and to share with their friends, right? And that connection, that emotion, that feeling uh, that people are connected makes them want to spend money there. It makes it an event, right? Instead, you're, it's like going to the mall and walking around and you just pick up a coffee because you're in the area, uh -huh. right? So the same concept when you walk into Glossier and you're going there with your friends to go hang out or go take pictures in their aesthetic room, you're going to want to spend money there. Oh, that eyeliner, I like that. Or this, this uh, new lotion, I want that, right? So you pick up little things and that's how they did what what was it billions of dollars in yeah. revenue in their first couple of years of business mm -hmm. i mean incredible incredible stuff so 
you know, it's, there's, there's so much missing there from a technology standpoint when it comes to creating connection. So anyone that can create connection is going to have an advantage or a leg up in the industry. Think about, uh, for those of you that have seen the original commercial for Dollar Shave Club, right? That $4,000 investment, which is pennies in comparison to what Gillette spends on an advertisement, pennies, right? That video created an emotion. It made you laugh. It made you want to, you know, it made you see your, your, your pop pop that used to use a one blade razor, right? It, it created this like idea of forget the big company. Who do you, who's Gillette to you? Like, why do you need Gillette? We have a better, we have a product that's, that's going to provide you the value. Like, who cares what the name brand is, right? Mm -hmm. But in creating that emotion for someone, now they care about the name brand. Now they want to be, be a customer of Dollar Shave Club because their advertisement, their marketing campaign was clever and witty and emotional and fun. You know, people want to be a part of that. Yeah, I would say, like I said, it was it was a phenomenal story to see. And like I said, that having a little aesthetic room is something that we see in a lot more places now. Like there's a place that does like funnel cakes and ice cream that's probably 15, 20 minutes from here that have like the whole wall is something to go take photos. And I always, whenever I walk by, I always see like people taking photos and snapping it in Instagram. So you're clearly getting not only sales, but you're getting marketing. So it works twofold and all I had to do was paint a wall. You know, it literally took no effort. Um, but the last company I want to touch on that I talked about in the book was Casper. Okay. Now, Casper is something that is probably the most similar to what we did with Pedal, except that we never own the inventory. So follow me on this one. So Casper, the problem with uh, Casper is a mattress company now. Um, mattress they will, in a box. Mattress they will ship box. it directly to you. Um, very, very, you know, high, high quality stuff at this point. But one of the things that they had in the beginning was people hated going to a mattress store. You go to a mattress store, you had to deal with a salesman that was given to give you the runaround. You didn't know what the pricing was. You're like, all right, I need a few days to look around at other places. Other mattress stores had the same exact ten million mattress. Yeah, same exact options. mattress, but under a different name. And these large mattress companies were all in on this. They would make multiple mattresses and just change, you know, it's the Pro XC, whatever it could be. And then you're just confused. And now you have no clue what you're buying. And how you gonna know if you like it? You're just gonna bounce on it for two minutes and be like, oh, I could sleep on this for five years. So one of the things we had when we did pedal was people didn't like going into a dealership and felt like they got the runaround, there were too many options, things like that. Um, but the good thing that Casper was able to do was that they were able to make their own product. Now, this is something that Pedal couldn't have done. We couldn't make our own car. We could have. It would just cost us a whole lot of money. Yeah, I don't, that wouldn't have worked out. Yeah, well. it doesn't work. Um, but essentially, they took a, a not only a product, because the product wasn't really wrong. The mattress product wasn't wrong. Granted, it saw improvements once you saw um, Tempur-Pedic and a lot of these companies come out with the foam mattress. But they were but more the trying... the products were up to date. The system yeah, was wrong. The system. It's the just like the car business. But that's what yeah, I'm saying. I get, I get, I get you the relationship. You didn't have a, a, you know, a system issue really with the... With, Dollar Shave Club. They right. just they, they were really working on getting the pricing of the stuff down. Sure. You didn't really see that with Glossier. With Casper, it was, yeah, we're not only going to get you a product that's a little bit cheaper, we're gonna but they were going against, yeah, they were trying to change the actual experience, which I think in a lot of industries is harder to do because you have to be able to sell yourself without putting down your competitor in a way that can hinder you. Truth. So they got to a point where they were able to ship these mattresses out. They kept doing a lot of testing. Um, and the big mattress companies didn't, really think they were going to be a threat until it was too late because they're thinking who's going to buy their stuff in a box our product understands you know when you're hot when you're cold how to trap techno you know, trap the heat when it's you know this and that that's being that casper mattresses cannot do but for a third of the price if you can get a casper mattress delivered to you instead of having to wait 
like they said, stories of people that would wait at home, take the day off for one or two days to wait for a delivery truck to show up, and it takes two guys to get it upstairs. Versus this, where you show up, a mattress is there, you unfold the box, box yeah, and you lay it down, and you're done. The experience, not only from going into um, a mattress store, but everything from delivery and installation was drastically made so much better that people were okay with the quality. Granted, the quality got better, but they were the ones that were really looking to disrupt an experience, as opposed to the first two we talked about that really went against product. And you know, it's so interesting that you brought up the bigger mattress brands like the Sealy Serta and all those guys, right? Because of all the concepts that were gone over in this book, I think they were actually the quickest to move. Because, mm -hmm. for example, Gillette. Gillette didn't touch this model. Mm -hmm. They thought they, it was a non-starter for them. They didn't care about Dollar Shave Club. They didn't think that they were going to touch them. The quality of their product wasn't as good. They didn't care about the price point. You know. Meanwhile, they lost massive, massive market share, and Unilever bought Dollar Shave Club for a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. right? So Gillette took a massive hit. Now, on the other hand, Sealy Serta, I believe, if mm -hmm. I remember correctly, yeah, they got in the game. They got in the game because they realized they're like, listen, you can either allow them to cannibalize your business and have none of their business and lose market share, or you can cannibalize a little bit of the business that you're doing right now and also capture market share in their game. Mm -hmm. What's going to come out better for you? Yeah. So that they were the only company that actually jumped in the game and decided to play. I think it was Tuft & Needle was yeah. the company that they bought, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. Um, and they actually got in the game and decided to play. But unlike... You know, Sealy Serta that jumped in the game with Tuft & Needle, Gillette didn't play. And uh, Samsonite didn't play against Away. You know, uh, Quip, Colgate hasn't done anything mm -hmm. to, to create a, a powerful toothbrush system to beat them out. You know, and it's just so interesting to watch that these big companies, because they're so antiquated in the way that they do things and their hierarchy has so many levels that they're just not nimble enough to react quickly. Yeah, and this is something we talked about when we were doing Pedal, was it was a mixture. Whenever anyone who's out there has ever started a company, you are, in the very beginning, you are terrified and secretive of anyone taking your idea. You think if they find it, they're going to take it. It's the best idea. What you don't understand, and what this book really highlights for a lot of people, is the not only the ego, but the untouch of the golden feeling that these companies have. Like Gillette. Gillette's like, all right, you guys are selling disposable razors. They're cheaper than us, but... Your product's trash. Our product is superior, which it was. Their product was There's no far doubt. superior, There's so no much doubt. better. Why would anyone want to go down to that? But what you're realizing is that, you know, these companies took so long to understand that there was a threat mounting behind them because it's like, a, think of like a car. Not everyone needs to buy, you know, the, the most expensive car on the market. You can get a, no one's buying the Lamborghini Erasers all the time. You sure. know, sometimes you want to get a lower market brand because it works just for you. Nothing wrong with that. Right. So if you're out there starting a company, don't be scared of the big company stealing your idea because that will actually slow you down. And we had that in the beginning. 100%. We were we were terrified of of, of Edmunds, True Cars, Edmunds, all of them, them taking our idea. When at the at, when you look back, and we we know now, they didn't care. They, not only did they, they not care, they, nobody wants. Uh, remember that businesses are run by people. And when you're the VP of sales for the Western region, you're not going to go put your butt on the line for some idea that may or may not work. Yeah, you're going to go because you want a job. Are. You want to stay in your job. So these big, massive companies aren't nimble enough. Not only because they have so much riding on their system that they already have, but because their employees don't want to put themselves in a position to fail. 
So they do what works and yeah. continue to go back to it, which is why, you know, as a small startup, if you want to go disrupt an industry, you're much more nimble and can pivot much easier, where these massive conglomerate companies are going to be much less um, quick to jump into a new idea mm -hmm. because of their, their, their cost of... Uh, you know, the cost of getting into a new business for them is going to be so massively high in comparison to just doing what works. Yeah. So it's it's just it's interesting to see that the majority of these businesses that mad, made, made massive disruptions in industries uh, were kind of looked at as the little guy that would never and get there. You, and you can't really blame them because you're going against companies that are selling, you know, billion dollars worth of product sure. every year. And someone, they're going to say, oh, they just sold their first... 20,000 mattresses, like, please, we sold that in a day. Right. You know what I mean? So it does. It takes a long time to get on someone's radar. But it is interesting to see. Like, like I said, a lot of these companies are open to disruption. Um, this model is starting to really be taken a lot more now because um, technology has made it a lot easier um, to be able to get products online, sell online, you know, take payments. People trust online shopping a lot more than they used to. No doubt. Um, if you would have been 10, 15 years ago and buying a mattress online. Yeah, nobody's just spent $1,000 on a mattress what's online. What's coming? I don't trust you. What's coming but in the mail? There's, right. I, would, I would, like I said, a lot of the little things they did, um, it was the mattress. It was Casper that did it, I think, or Tuft the Needle. They didn't know if anyone would make that big of a purchase online, so they just made a website. It was Casper. Yeah, put the put a mattress, a mattress, I should just say, online um, to see if anyone would actually give their credit card info and buy it. Person bought it. They contacted the person, said it's it's currently not available, but that gave them the the enough notice to say, hey, you know what, people will actually do this. They'll spend the money, which is great because, like I said, pre-pedal, we would have built out a whole system to see if someone will buy all of our mattresses and had all our stuff ready. Which, you know, if if it showed, because it would have worked. You know, we would have been ahead of the game, but we also would have been behind because we didn't have that feedback right away. No doubt. So we talk a lot about feedback. Get it as quickly as you can. You don't need a full site like Casper to be able to build out everything and then start selling. You can post online one mattress that you don't even own. If someone will buy that, contact them, have great customer support, um, get them a quick refund and just let them know, hey, you know, X, Y, and Z. But, you know, a lot of times that person out there, if they, if they told them exactly what happened, was the first customer for Casper, and I can guarantee you, I don't know this for a fact, I know we would have done it, so I'm assuming Casper would have done it too, that dude probably got a mattress. Oh, yeah. I would have easily went back to him, been oh, like, yeah. you were the first person, he totally, totally got had a got a mattress. Absolutely. For free, no cost, best one on the market, like, customer for life, whatever you need. Take because, it. like, that little moment is what led them to be able to get some feedback knowing that this could actually work. And not only that, they were able to turn it into a billion-dollar company. Incredible so stuff. I think, you know, little stories like that, the guy's not going to be mad at you. You know, he might be a little disappointed he wanted it, but he'll be fine. He, he bought an item and it was out of stock. Life happens. Life happens. And, you know, Warby Parker, I think, did the same thing. I mean, li a lot I of I had never heard of Warby Parker. And me neither, not until now. Did you go on their website? I you said you were looking at it. Beautiful. Yeah. They have beautiful a beautiful site. website and beautiful their products site. look great. Wow. Like, totally right up, right up my wow. alley. I've actually been looking for a nice pair of glasses for a long time. See, I, I wear contacts. I don't wear glasses. So I wear I never, contacts and glasses. So I never had a need to go on there. But yeah, I went on um, as I'm. Re so as you're reading the book, yeah, you know, there's some companies like I didn't know Warby Parker, um, but I went on their site and it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's gorgeous. literally it fits the kind of style that we we were trying to go for. Very beautiful, very elegant, informative, and their products um, are great. I, great. I like their glasses. I think they're good looking yeah. glasses all overall. And I think I think it was really cool to hear their story of how they started with like the plasticky type glasses mm -hmm. and then and started to incorporate other things because the plasticky glasses were like lighter and less expensive to mm -hmm. produce and they just wanted to create the experiment. Which leads me actually back to a book that we read 
a very long time ago, it feels like, but not really, less than six months ago, uh, with the Lean Startup. Right? The original. Like these, these, guys, these guys are all, you know, kings and queens of the experiment. They in this thing, too. 100%. They're the kings and queens of the experiment, right? Like, just like Casper, they created an experiment that they didn't even have a product for just to see if they could create a result that would be work, if I, workable for if them. If I had to recommend books for, a, a, like, an entrepreneur or a startup, I think I would almost tell them to read this to get inspired and, and then, then read, read the Lean, lean startup, startup to make sure they don't, to reel it back in and that's not go not, too that's crazy. That's smart. That's really smart. Because that's a really good this, idea. this book, um, like more said, we'll talk in a moment, but this book really was a, a phenomenal read start to finish. Um, but yeah, the way that these companies disrupted the market, Warby Parker, um, you know, Dollar Shave Club, all of them, and a lot of these brands are, are brands that we know now, but it's cool to see the origin of these. Because I remember when that Dollar Shave Club ad came out, but you know, you see it, I didn't buy it, I was like, I'm cool with my razors. I didn't whatever. buy it either, but I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was hilarious as well. I probably shared it ever. too. But then to think, I probably didn't follow them for probably a year or two after that until I actually went to buy razors. But you think of how much work went in in the background to make their company get to that level and this is kind of what it talked about how they yeah. had to go find new suppliers you know upgrade things and work in a whole different manner i think that was incredible to see kind of how they did it so and a phenomenal phenomenal story yeah i dig it i'm uh i mean we, i think we can go into kind of our final remarks mm-hmm. and final thoughts on the book um Overall, very, very, very well put together book. Really a great read. I really enjoyed listening to the stories. Um, they were very insightful. It wasn't like some of the other books that we've read uh, that gave us a lot of stories, but there wasn't a lot of particular context mm-hmm. and, and tools in there. I, I think that Lawrence did a really good job of mixing the story and creating an engaging uh, engaging book that people want to listen to and mixing that with the tools, tricks, and uh, you know, actual real life context mm-hmm. in regards to what they did to achieve success. I think that mixture, that balance of those two things was really important for me in this book and created a really great piece of value. So I would definitely say check out this book. This one's a 10 out of 10 for me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's about an eight hour read. It felt really short because it was a really well put together mm-hmm. book. Like you wanted to go to the next chapter. Uh, so I acknowledge you, Lawrence and Gracia, because it was a great book and I really liked it. Yeah, I want to. I want to, you know, piggyback on that as well. Like I said, this was part of the reason why we picked this book was one, it came out like two weeks ago, so we want to do something new. But the moment we saw this book pop up on one of our lists, we immediately were like, "Hey, this could be really interesting." Um, to me, this is in the top five of the books that we read. Hmm. I would say by far the easiest, not easiest. I would say the most exciting read. So we read, like I said, a book a week, which is rather tiring, and we read it most of the time in the car. There are days when I get in the car and I just want to listen to music or relax. It's been a long day. I don't want to learn. Because essentially you're learning every day. But um, this book was the moment you put it on, you're intrigued. You know, it, the, they told the story so well in a mixture of you can picture it, you can get an idea of how to run your own. It inspires you to think of your own ideas. More called me um, with a few ideas that he had yeah, for future My business immediately. And he was, you were in like still the first quarter of the book. Yeah, and I already had something. Yeah, I was, I was, I was in like the final, final quarter almost. And he was in the beginning and he was like hyped. He's like, dude, we should do this. And I'm like, yeah, like, let's keep going with these. So I would say probably the most inspiring book. I would say if you're looking to get inspired and, and you're good at learning how other people do stuff and then working backwards from that, that's how I like to learn. This book is perfect for you. Like he talked about, the Lean Startup, if you actually want to get into the nitty-gritty of what to do, Lean Startup is right there. 
If you want to learn how to, you know, be strong when you're selling or anything, pitch anything is the best. Incredible. If you think that you're not smart enough or you're not a numbers person, go read Richard Branson's book. Um, there were a lot here, but this one to me got the, because we've talked about it, we, we're, we always want to go back into tech. So we're in a phase right now where we're doing different things, but you know, we, our heart really is in tech. This one hit straight to it. I mean, this was getting you going on what we did right, what we did wrong. This gave a lot of validity to what we um, did wrong, but we also made the same adjustments they did. We knew that, hey, we did this, we were flexible enough to pivot. Um, so it lets us know that we were on the right path. Like I said, our path is very similar to Casper, except that we weren't in a position where we would make our own automobile. But we did almost everything the same as Casper off the bat as far as how we wanted to disrupt that market because buying a car was an incredibly difficult Still and confusing, confusing path. So very interesting to see that. But that's what we talked about. Our next one has to be a little bit more of a platform or where we have some control instead of being a pure intermediary um, between the two. Because Casper could have really found a way to you know buy these at wholesale and sell them out. They could, there's a lot of but routes then, they but, could have done, but, but it would have had, had the, the power. And they wouldn't have any leverage over mm-hmm. the other company. They wouldn't have... It's, yeah, so 100%. The reason, the fact that they were able to create their own so product... So all in all, I would say book. 10 out of 10, if you're someone who just wants to start thinking about a new business idea, start with this book. Beyond because that, Lean Startup will will, slow, will tire you out a little bit. True, because will get heavy. you. This will get you hyped. True. In addition to that... If you like living vicariously through people, like Ross said, you literally get to live vicariously through 10 different companies yeah. that made it work uh, through this book. It's really good stuff. So I highly recommend it as well. Um, we're going to go ahead and end the podcast for the day. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We're going to do a five-minute recap as well. So if you happen to want to check that out as well, you already watched the entire podcast by this point, so you probably don't need a five-minute uh, five recap. But we'll post that video as well. Um, guys, my name is More Milo. I'm Ross Santarelli. This is the 52 Podcast, 52 books, 52 weeks, making every single week count. This was episode 25. Thank you guys so much for joining us, and we will see you guys next week. Next week, guys. I just want to let you know this episode was brought to you by Pull Up Apparel. We're wearing one of their shirts right now. It's the Gianna and Kobe Bryant uh, Fearless, or Heart, Fearless T-shirt, um, $24.99. All proceeds go to Kobe Bryant and Vanessa's Foundation. I'm raising money for the tragedy. Um, So again, that's pulluppapparel.com. Use the discount code PULLUP10. So PULLUP10 for 10% off your your purchase. Get even more savings. Um, But yeah, like I said, they're a great sponsor for us. Go ahead and check them out. But with that, like I said, we'll see you guys next week. Stay tuned for that five-minute recap. You got it. Take care. What's going on, guys? My name is More Milo. I'm Ross Hanarelli. This is the 52 Podcast. Right now, we are doing a five-minute recap of our episode 25 book, Billion Dollar Brand Club by Lawrence in what is Ingrassia. Ingrassia, Ingrassia, I can never pronounce his name. Five minutes, ready, go. So guys, this book is all about a bunch of different brands that were able to create billion dollar companies, okay? Most of these, actually, excuse me, all of these companies, what they have in common is that they are all tech companies. Companies like Dollar Shave Club, companies like Casper, companies like Warby Parker. Massive, massive companies that were able to disrupt massive, massive industries. The biggest thing that we want to get you get across here today is that just because you're the little guy doesn't mean you can't take on the big guy. Uh, Dollar Shave Club was able to completely disrupt the shaving industry by taking on Gillette. 
a century-old rival and creating a billion-dollar business, mm -hmm. truly, by providing a bunch of value and creating a, creating a subscription-based service that allowed them to really deliver to their customers. So with that being said, there's a bunch of different companies like this that are taking on consumable goods in a different way and really, really changing the game. So for those of you that are looking to change the game, this is an opportunity for you guys to check out what's available to you. Okay. Yeah, this book will really, if you're a young entrepreneur looking to start a new business or, or just kind of understand how other companies did it, this book is going to be perfect for you. It's about an eight-hour read, um, incredible, easy to read, very inspiring as well because it really takes you through you know, how Dollar Shave Club started, how Casper, how a lot of these brands that we see now every day, how they started up from pretty much nothing and how they actually had probably one of the harder paths to take because they went up against, you know, multi-million and multi-billion dollar conglomerates like Gillette and, you know, Sealy Serta and all these big companies to be able to try to change that industry. And for a long time, you know, competitors weren't looking at them like, we want to take your idea, be scared, we're going to steal your idea. It was, oh, you're doing what? Yeah, we don't care. You're not going to be able to touch us. There was that ego effect, which comes with when you're selling a billion dollars worth of product every year and some young mattress companies selling mattresses in a box saying they sold 10,000 mattresses. No one's going to care. They're going to say, hey, let me know when you catch up to half a million in, in revenue. So if you're really looking to get inspired and you feel like that young company that you have can't compete with the big companies, read this book. It will really kind of get you going, get those juices flowing, um, and get you in a mindset where you're just ready to work and want to hit the, the, the ground running. Two big keynotes that I want you guys to take away from this book. It's all about value and customer connection. Okay, if you can create customer connection like Glossier, the cosmetics brand that created, uh, you know, photo booths basically for their customers to be able to create an experience and share that experience with all their friends so that they could create more customers and sell more products to their customers. You know, if you can create that connection, then you can create a massive business with a massive impact because people want to connect with a product that they're spending money on. The second thing is all about customer service. For example, like Warby Parker that delivered, hand-delivered a pair of eyeglasses that were late for a wedding that a customer was planning on going to and using those glasses for, they went and delivered this thing hand-to-hand, hand -hand, in person, uh, literally the day before went to the distribution center, picked up that item, and took it to their customer. Why did they do that? They didn't have to, but they knew that that would create a ripple within their business. If you take care of one customer, they will tell all their friends. The name of the game is sharing and creating connection with your customers and with your audience so that you can continue to create transactions and happy customers. Yeah, and like I said, customer service is something we talk about a lot with Amazon. Amazon, if you have a problem, here's your $50 back, here's your shipping label, just be happy because they don't want to lose you as a customer because of your lifetime value to them. And same thing with all these young companies. You know, Your, your cost to get a, a client or a new customer is so much higher than your competitors that you need to be able to try to keep them for as long as possible and make them happy, as you should. So, like I said, customer service is one of the big things. Um, building a good team around you is something that was very important for them, having people that they trusted. But like I said, don't be scared to go against that, that Goliath, that David and Goliath kind of feel. You know, look for something in your life that, you know, maybe is, is not as smooth as you wish it could be. Look for somewhere where you can find disruption and have full faith that, you know, with the right product and following a lot of the steps that these companies have done, you know, making sure to take care of your customers and your product and always looking to innovate and don't get, you know, lackadaisical. Things like that are really going to push you um, ahead of the game where these companies are feeling like they can sit back. You're going to be full steam ahead. These companies also have two other things that are in common. They're either creating more value within an industry 
or they're disrupting an industry by creating innovation. What that means is that there's room for everyone. Whether you have a new idea of the way to sell a product as opposed to creating a better one, or whether you have a better product that can take over a particular market segment. Either way, you can use technology, connection, and customer service to build a massive billion dollar brand. And with that being said, that's our time. Thank you guys so much for joining us for the five minute recap. This was episode 25. Uh, billion Dollar Brand Club. Billion, dollar, billion brand. dollar Brand Club. Thank you guys so much for joining us again. My name is Moore Milo. I'm Ross Hanarelli. This is the 52 Podcast. Take care.